Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the joy that we have in the gospel. We thank you that we have a hope that is not only for the future, but a hope that is for today and for every moment in every day. A hope that is not secured by us working for it, but by the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. And as we look to your word, and as we have sang, we ask that you would speak to us. That we would hear something of the, the rich plans that you intended to communicate to us. As Luke recorded these words that we're looking at this morning. Uh, grant me by your spirit to speak clearly, uh, to challenge all of our hearts, and that we might respond in a way that is honouring to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I really hope that I will encourage you today. And I wonder, when was the last time that you genuinely felt encouraged? Now, sadly, for a lot of you, you started to think long and hard, well, it didn't give you time to go long and hard, about when that was. And the reason why I say sadly is because in Christian community where we are given the command in Hebrews to encourage one another daily in order that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, it's surprising and it's sad how little encouragement sometimes there can be in Christian community. I know I don't encourage enough, especially with my, with my words, the things that I say. I keep forgetting that me thinking encouraging things is not actually encouraging someone if I don't communicate it and, and say it to them. But sometimes I wonder if one of the factors, not as an excuse, but one of the factors that's contributing to that, even in Christian community, we, there's not a strong enough sense of encouragement, is that we're surrounded by a culture that is quite very self-absorbed that's not really so much thinking in, in the best interests of those who are around us. But I want you to think about a time when you were encouraged in such a way that actually spurred you on to continue in a particular direction. Maybe it was at work where you were feeling really discouraged in your workplace role. You were feeling like you weren't valued as though you were just serving, getting things done, and that's because you weren't feeling valued, you're feeling no sense of purpose, maybe your productivity had gone down, and then just out of the blue someone kind of talks about how much they've valued the work that you have been doing and gets that recognition, and it's a funny way that works. All of a sudden we become more productive and we kind of feel encouraged, so this is worthwhile, this is meaningful, and we keep going forward. Or in our situation, to have a house that's been on the market for a long time, it's not presently on the market, and you start to see things picking up, you start to see good things happening around, and you think, no, there's encouragement, there's, there's motivation to move on. Because I think there's something within us that needs to feel there is a sense of value or something worthwhile to keep us pushing forward in a particular direction. Especially during times when it just seems like it's hard. Like there's no visible, tangible reward. What is it that keeps us moving forward? Now, if you're a user of social media, you've probably noticed over the last number of years the increasing hostility towards Christianity. 
Certainly the Israel Falau thing sort of brought that uh, front and format front at the moment. And you could be easily fall into trap of thinking we are living in the most difficult time to live as Christians. No, you're not. <laughs> Around the world there are people living in far greater hostility than you are who would love to be in a building like this, gathering in a public way like this. But even as we've gone through the book of Acts, the settings in which Paul ministered in and Peter and all the things that are happening in the early church were far more resistant to the gospel than even slightly what we experience. But as we look through the book of Acts, the things we hear come from the mouths of believers, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of discouragement, does there? There doesn't seem to be much of, woe is me, this, these things are going on around me. There's just a strong, this is who I am, this is the wonder of the gospel, it's pushing me forward, it's pushing me outward. It's kind of like they actually believe that Jesus is reigning from heaven. And that, that thought of the power of the gospel and what he's achieved is more pushing them forward then the difficulty of their circumstances around them is discouraging them and pulling them back. Now, I know I could benefit, and I'm sure all of us could benefit, from being able to see our world more clearly through the lens of the gospel. So today we're going to look at the encouragement that the gospel provides as we work our way through this passage. We're going to look at the fruit of the gospel in the first six verses. The importance and power of the gospel in verses 7 to 12 and the effect of the gospel in verses 13 to 16. Now I've got to say, this was a passage that when I first read it, I thought there's some interesting things in there, but I'm not sure if there's really a sermon in it. But when the Bible tells us by its own confession that all of God's word is profitable for teaching, that we might be equipped for every good work, isn't it good when you just press into God and you're praying and all of a sudden you see all this stuff and think, man, this is stuff that we need to know, we need to be sharing. So starting with the fruit of the gospel, as you read the passage, you could easily think that the first six verses, it's kind of like Paul's travel itinerary, he went here, here and here. Same goes maybe for verses 13 to 16, you think, to skip over that, we'll just concentrate on the stuff in the middle. But in that list of destinations, difficult to pronounce names, we see something of the fruit and the nature of Paul's ministry. We finished off at the end of chapter 19 in our last our sermon in our series in Acts where there'd been a big riot in Ephesus. It got to the point where it got into the theatre and it got so chaotic that half the people there didn't even know why they were there or what was going on. And eventually one of the civil rulers kind of settles it down, tells everybody to go home, that there's nothing uh, to make such a big fuss about. But after this riot, Paul is deciding to move on to go to the next location. But not before he gathers the Christians together to encourage them. Can you imagine what it would have communicated to the Christian community in Ephesus if there'd been a riot and Paul just moves on? 
It would have communicated to the Ephesians that the gospel provides no encouragement, no hope, no insight to be able to stand up in the middle of those circumstances. For the gospel to be all satisfying, it must bring hope. It must shed light and bring encouragement into every sphere of life. So Paul presented them with encouragement. How the gospel sheds light, brings hope, brings encouragement. How they can stand firm, how they can move forward despite whatever hostility might be going on around them. Now when you go through Acts, it's really easy to to pick up on all the great evangelistic things that happen. But we've seen a regular thread too that Paul goes back to those towns which he first reached people with the gospel to encourage them, to strengthen them in the face, to help show them the value and why it's worthwhile to keep going forth, even if they're facing hard and difficult circumstances. Now, as much as I've been speaking a lot and encouraging us a lot to think more about those outside of the body of Christ who don't yet know Jesus, the 20-plus million who live in our country who don't know Jesus, without hope, separated from the life of God, destined for an eternity of punishment. As much as I want us to have that outward focus, I don't, at the same time, want us to take the foot off the throttle at all in terms of bringing Christians to maturity. A healthy church needs to be doing both. We need to be building up those who are in Christ, but also reaching out to those who don't know Christ. It's the way Paul ministered in the beginning, in the early days and the growth of the church. It's good for us today. So having encouraged the believers in Ephesus, he moves on through Macedonia, an area which he first got that, that vision when he's in Troas to go and help the people in Macedonia and gave them much encouragement, it says. Paul didn't, wouldn't have just gone through those areas and said, Jesus is good, he loves you, keep going. He would have shown how the gospel sheds light on their situation, how the gospel moves them forward, how the gospel is worthy and valuable of all of their life investment. It says they gave them much encouragement, lots, a multitude, immense encouragement. Because the gospel does not lack power and encouragement into every single area of our life. It's a really good and healthy question to ask whatever we're going through is, how does the gospel bring hope, encouragement and shed light in the situation that I'm in? And sadly, I'll say it's a question that we're not very good, well-practiced at doing. Like I've had a number of occasions when I've asked people that question when they're talking about a situation in life in which they are in, And they just look at me blankly and say, what do you mean? I'm not talking about my sin. I'm talking about this thing that's going on in my life. But the gospel, while it centrally is about what God has done in Christ to do with our sin, that's not all. The gospel is an all of life thing. It's probably many now thinking, still, what do you mean? 
So let me provide just a couple of examples so we're not vague. Say, for example, all of us have probably experienced a time when we're going through guilt, either through things that we've done in our past or things even present. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of the power of the gospel that Jesus died for sin once for all. I know I've been caught in that rut and I just need to remind myself of the power of what Jesus has done, that this thing that I'm holding on guilt for has been dealt with in its entirety. Or what if you're being mistreated because you were a Christian in your workplace, your social groups? The gospel provides us that hope that the Jesus in whom we have faith, who lived a perfect life, he was mistreated, constantly mistreated, constantly absorbing injustice and giving out nothing but grace in response. The same Jesus who is in us and who says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Or maybe it could even be that step further of his, I don't even know how I can get through the rest of the day, never mind the rest of the week. This Jesus who has conquered every power and authority, defeated death, sin and Satan, who is in you and who is with you, It's also the one who reveals in his scriptures says, I have given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. There's absolutely nothing that we can face in this life that he has not provided everything that we need for. Now we could list situations all day long, but hopefully that's a bit of an illustration of the point that I'm trying to make. Maybe in your conversations after church, If you talk about things that are going on in life, maybe ask that question. How does the gospel bring hope and encouragement and motivation into this situation? Or even as you're hearing about other things that are going on around you, maybe even to think and prepare in advance for your own benefit, how does the gospel bring hope into this situation should I ever find myself in it? Because I'll tell you, when you're in the middle of the situation, you're not always the best at clearly thinking through those things. And after greatly encouraging the people in Macedonia, he moves on to Greece, which what we can gather from other records is he spends three months' time in Corinth during winter, during which time he writes his letter to the church in Rome. And after opposition from the Jews, Paul continues through Macedonia and ends up in Troas. You think... Now he's got this journey, he's got this place name, these names, these people, and it seems just like a list of difficult names and places just to make it fun for whoever's on Bible reading that week so they can have a crack at it. But there's a bit more to it than that. When you look at these names in Acts 20 verse 4 and where they're from, you start to see a bigger picture of the fruit of Paul's ministry. You've got Zapata there from Berea in Macedonia, Aristarchus and Sicatandus from Thessalonica in Macedonia, You've got Gaius from Derby in Galatia, Timothy from Lystra in Galatia, Tychicus and Trophimus from Ephesus, and Luke, who was not a local from Philippi, but had quite a ministry in there, potentially being represented as well. So what initially just looks like a list of random names and locations, we start to see that in these significant areas in which Paul's had a ministry, there are people from those areas represented and now travelling alongside with Paul. 
Now, while commentators come up with all sorts of different theories of why and what they are doing, the text itself doesn't give you detail, so that means, from God's perspective, it's not that important. But I think there's a fair conclusion to make that the fruits of mission, that is, those who come to faith through Paul's mission, become the agents of mission. The fruits of mission, those who are, who are reached for Jesus, become the next round of missionary agents to bring others to Jesus. Because people, when we are saved, are not saved into private individual privileges just for me to keep to myself. We are saved into God's kingdom, servants of God's kingdom. The gospel doesn't just save, it also recruits. It recruits and it recruits in a way that we multiply. It recruits in a way that we actually delight in wanting others to experience this. Now, I've noticed this in all areas of life that people just naturally do this. If you discover someone who's bought a product which they believe has changed their life or they've made a lifestyle choice or a dietary choice that they believe has changed their life, they naturally take it upon themselves, voluntary, no pay, to think, I'm the person who's going to tell the whole world they need to get on board with this product, service, diet, fad, whatever it is. How much more when we've had the genuine death to life, judgment to righteousness, experiencing Christ. And as they arrive in Troas, where they stay for seven days, Remember, this is the place where initially Paul received that vision to be sent to go to Macedonia to help the people there. And the narrative starts to slow down from what has been just, we went here, went here, went here. Now it slows down as as Luke starts to focus in and say, pay attention to this, where we see the importance and power of the gospel. Now the text tells us they stayed here for seven days, But the only thing that Luke hones in on is the last night that Paul is there before he travels on to the next destination. It's described as being the first day of the week, which is um, the Sunday. And it's the first time that we actually see in the Bible a description of the church gathered in a sense on a Sunday for their regular gathering. As we know, Jews practice their gatherings on, on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, And the earliest of Christians started to gather on Sunday, particularly in in correlation with that being the day in which Jesus was raised. We see the premise back in Acts chapter 2, that that those who came to Christ devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the apostles' teaching. And that's essentially what we're seeing taking place here. But there are two key things which Luke really focuses on in this meeting. One is Paul's quite lengthy talking in that meeting. And this poor guy, Eutychus, falls asleep, third floor window, dies and raised to life. And part of you got to think, if they were there for a whole week, I'm sure lots of other things happened. Why would Luke hone in and focus on this? If this is God's word given to us, what is there to glean What is there to take from Paul speaking for a long time and some guy falling out of a window? Has has Luke given us this as saying, this is how you're supposed to do church. 
It has to be an evening service. You must have a meal. Sermons have got to be heaps long. And make sure you've been well slipped before you turn up. Or on the other hand, is he trying to give us a bit of a warning to preachers about the dangers of long, uninteresting sermons? So I'd better keep this brief if that's the case. I don't think he's trying to do either of those things. Even though Gary Miller's excellent book on preaching is called Saving Eutychus. But remember what the setting is of where these events take place? It's the church gathered together and Paul was going to move on the next day. We've already seen how much Paul has a heart to encourage Christians, to, to motivate them, to show them the hope that they already have in the gospel and how that applies to all areas of their life. Paul's got lots to share. He knows he's going the next day. He wants to give them everything to, to point them in the right direction. But I imagine there's a sense in which this was the place where he received the vision to go to Macedonia, where he wants to say, this is where God led me and this is the fruit which has come of what God has led me to do. This is what took place in Macedonia as I followed him in his leading. Paul encouraged them, probably both with teaching elements of the gospel and story elements of the gospel. How the gospel has been at work in his life and in the life and those in which he's been ministering amongst. He wants them to press on in the faith. Encourage them, this is worthwhile. Keep going forward. Because if we start to think this passage is just a reminder for preachers, keep it short, keep it interesting, so people don't fall out the window and die, you're going to really miss the point. Matter of fact, there's nothing in the text at all that suggests that anybody was bored. The fact that people were engaged willingly in dialogue with Paul till the sun came up, they were very interested in what was going on. If anything, it highlights how important the gospel was to Paul, how important the gospel was to the Christians there at Troas, and how many questions they had to Paul knowing that he was about to leave that next day. Now I can tell you there's not too many things in life that I'm excited enough about to talk through all night until the sun comes up. What about Eutychus Day? Maybe it wasn't a very young person oriented message, do you think? He's described as being a young boy, maybe 12 or even less. But it's described as a room with many lamps. Maybe there have been heat. He's young. The night's getting on, getting up to midnight. The language that says that he sank into a deep sleep literally kind of means that he was overthrown. In other words, he was fighting it. He wanted to stay awake. Possibly he's even sitting in the window as his last-ditch effort to, to try and stay awake, kind of like you do sometimes on road trips when you wind your windows down, hoping that'll keep you awake. And he lost that battle to stay awake. Now, as you know, I used to pastor in a rural town in Victoria where there were a lot of farmers and a lot of older farmers, and I can tell you that a number of them quite often would lose that battle on a weekly basis. I'll be preaching down there in a couple of weeks, and I'm sure I can think of two people who are likely to lose that battle at some point that morning. But what do you expect when a kid falls down from window third floor? He dies. There's no nothing ambiguous about the text. He fell down. He was dead. 
Now, Paul didn't say, oh, not now, I'm leaving tomorrow, I haven't got time to hang around for a funeral. No, Paul stops what he's doing. Yes, preachers, sometimes there are things more important than your sermon. He goes down, and much like Elijah and Elisha, we see in First and Second Kings, he lays down on that child who was dead, and he says, you don't need to worry, his life is in him. This child who was dead has been brought to life. Now the Christians in Troas, they've already experienced coming from spiritual death to life on the first time that Paul came and, and preached the gospel to them. They've just been hearing all night about what the gospel's been doing to bring life to people around Macedonia, Asia and Galatia and all those other areas. And now they have seen the power that is available at the gospel This Jesus who conquered sin, death and Satan. They see this boy who fell to his death and is raised to life. Then they go up, they're eating and they keep on discussing. So it's not just a sermon now, there's dialogue until the sun comes up in the morning. And I love the understatement of verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted. They've heard all of these wonderful things about what the gospel is doing. They've seen a boy raised from death to life and they were not a little comforted. They were not a little encouraged. Again, same word that was used as encouraged earlier on. Of course they were. How can it not cease to encourage you to hear about what God is doing in the lives of other people? in areas where there had been no gospel presence whatsoever. Now it's wonderful hearing about stories about people who were once separated from the life of God, who were brought into a loving relationship with him. And I want to start hearing a lot more of those stories, sharing amongst our church family here as well, as we seek to, to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. But even though a lot of good things happened in Troas, that wasn't the final destination There seems to be this push that Paul's keen to get on to Jerusalem. And in the last verses, we'll see something of the effect of the gospel. Again, a list of many names, locations. Luke's just a thorough kind of guy. He kind of talks about that in the opening of his gospel, saying, no, I've thoroughly investigated these things. Which is nice to know that the things that we read about aren't just something casual idea that he had these are things that have been thoroughly looked at and this is a record of things that really took place but there's a desire at the end there that he wants to get to jerusalem if he can by the time of pentecost now the general consensus are and what we can piece together from other letters is that paul had gone as he was traveling around to the other gentile churches was taking up a collection to help out the jewish christians back in jerusalem who were in great need. We see that mentioned in a number of Paul's letters when he talks about about that particular collection. But whether there's a connection to Pentecost or not, whether it's just a, a nice connection of how good would it be for Gentiles to be blessing the Jewish Christians at the time when, the, when they're celebrating the coming of the Spirit, which, which led to the gospel going out to them. I don't know whether there's a nice tie-in or not. But whether there is or not, it is a powerful testimony to the effect of the gospel. Now, there had been a really long-held history between the Jews and the Gentiles that Jews would look down 
greatly upon the Gentiles. The way they thought of them, the way they spoke of them, the way they acted towards them was with contempt. But God always had a plan that was for all nations. Genesis 12, we've seen the promises to Abraham that through your offspring, which the book of Galatians tells singular, Jesus, I will bless all nations. Jesus' own words in the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. Or in Acts 1 verse 8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that happening throughout the book of Acts. With at times, sometimes the the Jewish-Gentile relationships, kind of figuring out how that would all work. But now these Gentile Christians, equally children of God, alongside their brothers and sisters from a Jewish background, who were once treated with contempt, have been so changed that they willingly want to financially support the poor Jewish Christians that they probably never met. And not sort of that begrudgingly. It's not like Paul ran, ran to churches with some emotive video clip that, that kind of moved them and, and persuaded them to pull their wallets out. Look at the description we see Paul write about in 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Out of extreme poverty overflowed abundance of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us to earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. These people who didn't have much were begging Paul for the privilege of giving to the Jewish Christians who'd been had a long heritage of speaking down upon them. That's the type of change the gospel brings. Remember what Jesus says, you will know my disciples by their love for one another. And I don't think that was to mean like in a one singular church environment of Christian love for one another, not just Eastgate Bible Church, but Christians with one another. So what? Do we just think, well, Paul did some travelling, kid fell asleep, died, raised life, Paul did a bit more travelling? We know there's more to it than that. Like there's one theme that permeates the whole way through it and that is of encouragement. And by encouragement I don't just mean making people feel nice or feel happy. You can do that lots of ways. You can do that through flattery. You can do that through lying. But by encouragement I mean helping someone to appreciate and see a bigger picture of who God is. What he has done in Christ, what we have inherited through that relationship, what he has promised that allows us to completely change our perspective, knowing that we are a child of God, who we belong to, that can change how we look at all of our life circumstances. That we can keep moving forward because we belong to something far bigger than the minute details of the ins and outs of everyday life. 
Now, we live in a fast-paced world, and it's really easy to take your eyes off God and get distracted by the little things that are going on in my world at this time. I used to work at the Christian youth camp, and that's where I first met Sarah. And one of the activities you used to run was at a low ropes course, there was a two trees with a metal cable between it, and there was a rope you'd lean back and you'd kind of balance your way through to the other end. If you wanted to have any chance of getting to the other end, you needed to be focused on where you were going to. Every single person who looked down at their feet or looked down at the cable lost their balance and fell off. And in the Christian life, we need to have our eyes fixed on the author and our perfecter of our faith. That's what we're called to do in Hebrews. To allow us see him and see our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just something that applied to something one day when we, when we call out to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. It's an all-encompassing all of life. As Paul travelled through the areas where he'd done ministry, he strengthened them, he encouraged them. He didn't just say, keep going, Jesus is good. He showed them the worth and the value of what God has done in them of who they belong to, what he has called them to, what he has provided for them to do, what he has called them to do, that they would continue to press on, both in what God has declared in his word, but also in the examples of what Paul has experienced in his own life, seeing the gospel at work, what he's seen in the gospel at work in the lives of others that he's experienced. But for us now, almost 2,000 years on, We've got centuries of seeing the church continue to grow despite often great opposition because in every generation Christians have seen something of the grandness of the gospel, the greatness of their God that lets them see beyond the circumstances in which they live in and helps them to refine and interpret the circumstances in which they live. So what the author of Hebrews says is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. You know what an anchor does? It stops you from going places where you shouldn't be going. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Not just in reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done to do with our sin, but we do need that daily. We need to preach to ourselves daily how the gospel takes effect and impacts on every aspect of our life. And we need to preach the gospel to one another daily because sometimes we just don't have the strength or our mind isn't thinking to do that. We need to be encouraging to build one another up. And then as we live as a people who have such a resilient hope, despite all the things that may be going on around us, as we hold out that message of the good news of the gospel to others around us, people see this isn't just a fairy tale, this is a gospel that works. This is a gospel that is an all-of-life thing. This is a gospel that is an evidence of a God who is all-powerful and a God who can be trusted with our lives. So let's encourage one another, encourage ourselves, and get in the good habit of asking, what does the gospel say to my situation? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that you have given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you that the gospel is not only the answer to an eternal problem, it is an answer to the every minute problem. Lord, help us to see a greater and with greater clarity who you are and how that transforms our understanding of who we are and this world in which we live in. Help us to, to comprehend the extent to which the gospel reaches into every area of our life, provides us with motivation and encouragement and hope, even in areas where the world would think there is absolutely no hope to be found. And Lord, we pray to you that this good news of the gospel would not be something that we keep to ourselves, but would be a gospel that we um, gladly and willingly um, share and hold out to those around us to, who don't know you, who other than the, the hope that's only available in Christ are destined for an eternity in hell without you. Yet you have done everything to rescue us from that. Help us to keep out of love to speak often of that and often and how that impacts us on a daily basis, that it might be seen as genuine and tangible in the everyday of everyday Christians. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.